You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 329 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we used the last episode to start to talk about Rhodes' plan to attack south from Oak Hill with three of his brigades, those of O'Neill, Iverson, and Daniel. As Dick Yule and Robert Rhodes envisioned it, the attack would come crashing down on the right end of the Federal First Corps line, roll it up from north to south, and drive the Yankees from the field. But, as John David Hoptak points out in his book, Confrontation at Gettysburg, Rhodes' plan quickly ran off the rails as, quote, poor communication, vague directives, uninspired leadership, and an imperfect understanding of the Union positions would all combine to result in a series of disjointed, costly assaults. O'Neill's brigade was the first to come to grief when it advanced sometime after two o'clock that afternoon. Volleys of musketry from the Union soldiers in Henry Baxter's brigade raked O'Neill's lines, and the Confederate attack quickly foundered. Captain Robert Park of the 12th Alabama wrote in his diary that the, quote, balls were falling thick and fast around us and whizzing past and often striking someone near. Rather than leading the attack in person, Edward O'Neill had remained in the rear, and so his Alabamans, without leadership from above, were staggered and then forced to pull back, leaving behind dozens of dead or wounded, while many others fell into federal hands as prisoners. Rhodes would later report that the assault, quote, was repulsed quickly and with loss. Just minutes later, Iverson's brigade of North Carolinians came sweeping down from Oak Hill. On the federal side, Division Commander John Robinson directed Baxter to change position to confront this new threat. Having successfully fended off O'Neill's attack, Baxter was now able to form a new line facing west, and then his men, with deadly patience, waited behind the cover of a stone fence as Iverson's four regiments approached their position. The rebels, inexplicably advancing without skirmishers spread out to the front, 
were completely unaware that 1,400 Union soldiers were concealed nearby. To make matters worse, Alfred Iverson, like O'Neill, also preferred to remain behind and watch rather than lead his men forward in person, and so as the historian of the 23rd North Carolina would later bitterly declare, quote, Unwarned, unled as a brigade, went forward Iverson's deserted band to its doom. The Confederates, in perfectly ordered ranks, came on at an angle to the stone fence, aiming for a patch of woods beyond the end of Baxter's line, and thus unwittingly presented their left flank to the concealed Federals. In that way, the rebels blundered forward into a perfectly designed ambush, and when Baxter's men rose up from behind the stone fence and opened fire, that first devastating volley dropped North Carolinians by the hundreds. In a matter of minutes, Iverson lost 800 of his 1,300 men. The destruction of Iverson's brigade is one of the great tragedies of the Battle of Gettysburg, but, like much of the action on the first day of the fighting, it's a part of the battle that's little known or appreciated by most people. In his book on Gettysburg, Stephen Sears writes, quote, Iverson's brigade was wrecked beyond any further use, and Iverson himself thrust into limbo. There would be rumors of cowardice and drunkenness, and while proof of such charges was lacking, it was evident that his men would no longer tolerate him in command. The mortally wounded Colonel Daniel Christie of the 23rd North Carolina told his surviving men that while he might not live to command them again, he would see to it that the imbecile Iverson never should. Nor did he, and three months later, Alfred Iverson was transferred out of the Army of Northern Virginia. Edward O'Neill, too, was permanently tarnished as a brigade commander. Lee pocketed O'Neill's promotion to Brigadier General, confining him thereafter to regimental command. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The decisive repulse of O'Neill's Alabamans and the dramatic destruction of Iverson's North Carolinians left the 3rd Brigade in Rhodes' assault, Daniels, moving ahead on its own. 35-year-old Junius Daniel commanded four North Carolina regiments and one battalion, and at just over 2,100 men, it was by far the largest brigade in Rhodes' division. Iverson, as his brigade was getting slaughtered, appealed to Daniel for support. Daniel led his men forward, sweeping down across the fields about 200 yards to the right rear of where the survivors of Iverson's brigade were hugging the ground as Baxter's Federals blazed away at them from behind the stone fence. Daniel was a well-respected officer with an excellent reputation, but he'd never before led a brigade in a large battle like Gettysburg. Now, on the afternoon of July 1st, he found himself thrust into a tricky spot. He wanted to support Iverson and at the same time deal with the Union soldiers in Sheed's Woods, but as his men advanced south, they started to come under fire from some other Federals positioned directly to their front. Those Federals were Roy Stone's Pennsylvanians, who were facing north along the Chambersburg Pike. At this point, you may be going, now wait, what? Since this portion of the fighting isn't terribly familiar to a lot of people, and this section of the battlefield isn't as well known to most people, but very simply, all of this is taking place north of the Chambersburg Pike, which has kind of been our touchstone landmark in the fighting that has taken place so far. And most recently, we've also injected Oak Hill into the discussion. So, moving north from the Chambersburg Pike, you have the railroad cut, then Sheed's Woods, which is held by Cutler's Federals. Tying into Cutler's position, Baxter's brigade had extended the Union line north to the Mumisburg Road. And then there's Oak Hill, that dominant piece of high ground, which, of course, is where Rhodes' Confederates have come onto the battlefield. We've also mentioned Oak Ridge, which is really just the northern extension of McPherson's Ridge that runs up to Oak Hill. So hopefully you can picture all of that in your mind's eye. But still, we really can't stress enough that if you are serious about following all of the action that happened during this sprawling three-day battle, then looking at a map is simply essential. And here we'll put in another plug for the Gettysburg Campaign Atlas by Phil Lano. It's a bit of an investment, but you'll never regret having this excellent atlas available as a handy reference as you study the battle. Okay, so anyway. Okay, so anyway. As we said just a moment ago, on the afternoon of July 1st, Junius Daniel found himself in a tricky spot. In response, he decided to divide his brigade, swinging two of his regiments to the left to deal with the Yankees in Sheed's Woods, while advancing his remaining three regiments to the south toward Stone's Pennsylvanians along the pike. 
by the by, uh, not to complicate things, but we should probably mention that the two regiments Daniel shifted to the left to face the Federals in the woodlot were the 12th and 53rd North Carolina, and they were joined by an Alabama outfit, the 3rd Alabama, which was actually part of O'Neill's brigade. But for reasons that remain unclear, the 3rd Alabama had ended up advancing with Daniel's troops. Okay, so anyway. Meanwhile, the three regiments that Daniel sent toward the Chambersburg Pike advanced south. These were the 43rd, 45th, and 32nd North Carolina, along with the 2nd North Carolina Battalion. Watching as the Confederates drew closer, Colonel Roy Stone ordered the 149th Pennsylvania to move forward from the pike to the railroad cut. As y'all recall, we mentioned the 149th in the last episode, as it was their colors that were moved off a short distance in order to decoy the rebel artillery fire that was coming in from the west. Right. And now, after the 149th moved up to the railroad cut, the Pennsylvanians waited until Daniel's North Carolinians got to within point-blank range before opening a terrific fire on them. The men of the 143rd Pennsylvania, still back along the pike, added their fire to the mix, as did some 1st Corps cannon posted just to the east. As this combined fire lashed their lines, the 45th North Carolina and 2nd North Carolina Battalion fell back in some disorder. But Junius Daniel would display bulldog-like tenacity that afternoon. He wasn't going to give up after just one try. He rallied his men for another attack, while Stone ordered the 149th Pennsylvania to fall back to the Chambersburg Pike. The men hustled back to their original position to the left of the 143rd Pennsylvania. They were joined there by Stone's 3rd Regiment, the 150th Pennsylvania, which swung north from its position in front of the McPherson Farm Buildings. And being from Western PA, I find the story of this particular regiment interesting. You see, for the first year and a half of the war, Roy Stone was associated with the 13th Pennsylvania Reserves. That outfit became famous as the Pennsylvania Bucktails, rugged backwoodsmen and lumbermen from Northwestern PA who learned from an early age to shoot for food and work hard to survive. Each potential recruit for the 13th was expected to demonstrate his skill with a musket by presenting the tail of a white-tailed deer that he shot. Many of the men stuck the tail on their caps as a badge of honor, and in a short time the regiment became known as the Pennsylvania Bucktails. The regiment distinguished itself on the battlefield, and the War Department was so impressed with the Bucktails that they detached stone and sent him back to the Pennsylvania mountains with orders to bring back a whole brigade's worth of bucktailed warriors. Stone successfully recruited one regiment, the 149th, and in February 1863, two more Pennsylvania regiments were added to his command. The men of the 149th and 150th attached bucktails to their caps and dubbed themselves the Bucktail Brigade. And although the 143rd doesn't seem to have claimed that designation, 
Nevertheless, the original bucktails were outraged, and they contemptuously called Stone's new outfit the bogus bucktails. At Chancellorsville, the outfit's first battle, the brigade saw no action to speak of and so didn't have a chance to prove itself, which meant that at Gettysburg, both Roy Stone and his men were eager to tangle with the enemy and dispel the disparaging tag of bogus bucktails. Now on the afternoon of July 1st, as they waited along the Chambersburg Pike, the men of the three Pennsylvania regiments pulled back the hammers on their muskets and braced for another Confederate attack. They didn't have long to wait. Daniel's North Carolinians came on again and again met a heavy fire. This time, the 45th North Carolina and 2nd North Carolina Battalion were joined in the attack by the 32nd North Carolina, which had moved up in support. Despite the heavy enemy fire, the rebels pushed on, this time all the way to the now vacant railroad cut. However, like Davis's Confederates earlier, Daniel's men now found the railroad cut a double-edged sword. Although it provided cover, in most spots it was too deep and its sides too steep for it to be used as a trench, and many of the North Carolinians could do little except mill around in the bottom of the cut uselessly. With the momentum of the rebel charge broken, Stone ordered the 149th Pennsylvania back out to charge toward the railroad cut. The railroad cut once again was the scene of bloody fighting as, this time, Pennsylvanians and North Carolinians grappled with one another in brutal close-quarters combat. The Confederates again came out with the worst of it as the Federals once more cleared the cut of the enemy, capturing a good number of Daniel's men in the process. The rest of Daniel's line withdrew, with his second attack now having been driven back. The cost of these attacks had been heavy on both sides. On the Federal side, Roy Stone had fallen, shot through the hip, and command of the brigade had passed to Colonel Langhorn Wister of the 150th Pennsylvania. It wasn't long, though, before Wister had to relinquish command and leave the field after receiving a gruesome wound to the face that left him unable to speak. Meanwhile, despite his heavy losses, Junius Daniel wasn't finished. He sensed he'd come tantalizingly close to success, and so again prepared for yet another attack. And that's where we're going to leave things for this show. Like Heath's earlier effort, Rhodes' attack, sweeping down from Oak Hill, has also been a bust. The Union First Corps is putting up a tenacious defense, yielding not an inch of ground there on the western outskirts of Gettysburg, and turning back repeated rebel assaults. For the moment, the First Corps troops are holding their own. But as we'll see, it wouldn't be long before the tide of battle reversed its bloody course, and the Confederates will at last gain the upper hand in the fighting on the first day of the battle. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Gettysburg, the stories of men and monuments as told by Battlefield Guides by Frederick W. Hawthorne. 
We picked up this book when we were at Gettysburg last summer, and over the past year have found it to be an enjoyable resource to page through. There are so many statues and monuments at Gettysburg, and there's an interesting story that goes along with many of them. As a tie-in to this week's episode, if you visit the battlefield today and are there near the McPherson barn, you can find the monument to the 149th Pennsylvania Infantry, which features a Union soldier with, yes, you guessed it, a bucktail on his cap. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we wrap up this show, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. I have to say I was ridiculously excited to see that fully one half of the new members this past week were named Richard. So thanks to Richard L., Richard M., and Richard H. And then there were also some other guys named Michael, Jesse, and Patty. Just kidding, guys. Thanks to all of you for your support of the podcast. We also want to say thank you to Arthur and James and Carol Sue for their donations this past week. And last but not least, thanks to all of yuns for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.